Call me on my carpet with that je ne sais quoi You say I need a little of my hula-la I know you get lonely in your Canada bed But say no more, baby, I'll be running everywhere Say no more yeah, I think Luke's chomping at the bit to get back into this uh, Russian bot discussion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, please. Maybe because he has something to hide. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's chomping at the bit to exonerate himself. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he doth protest too little, much, don't you guys think? A little think? too eagerly. I'll be honest with you guys. I've never met Luke Savage. I've never actually seen him in the flesh. He may well be a bot. Well, we have been hearing a lot about this AI technology recently, so, you know, you never know. But further to what you were just saying, Bronco, I mean, the crux of this study that I wrote about recently about the, the influence of Russian bots, this was an NYU-based study from the Center for Social Media and Politics at NYU. And a big part of their analysis was that, you know, insofar as there were like, quote unquote, Russian bots that were, you know, identifiable and were linked to Russian IP addresses, like the number of people who actually saw them compared to people who just like watch cable news and are exposed to mainstream media is minuscule. And then of the people who saw them, the demographic that was most likely to see them were like hardcore Donald Trump supporters, like people who identify like very hard as Republicans. So, I mean, it's just not tenable as an explanation for why the 2016 election ended as it did. But as I discovered in the like pretty absurd reaction to that piece, or, you know, a lot of the tweets uh, that came in my direction after it got published, it is just such a load bearing myth that like it's going to endure, I think, regardless of like, it, like, naively, I kind of thought, well, this is a study from NYU. It's a very academic study. It's very rigorous. Like, the people behind it are academics. They don't really have an agenda. And I thought, like, liberals like empirical evidence, right? Like, this is gonna, this is gonna work. So naive. Uh, nope. So naive. <laughs> I mean, they needed the, the thing, the, the real, the real sort of function that it serves is that liberals needed an apolitical explanation for their political loss in 2016. And that's why you'll, you'll have to pry the bots from their cold, dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and by the way, the, these studies have been coming out, I mean, like, since 2016, like in 2017, 2018, there were studies basically making this exact point, uh, of course, completely ignored, even though they were reported in, in places like the New York Times. Um, There's actually also a couple of interesting studies more recently. There was one from the University of Adelaide, and there was another one from something else, which I can't, I can't remember which place it was. But um, one of them looked at, I think, something like 10 million tweets or something. Um, another one looked at like hundreds of thousands of, of um, tweets about the uh, Ukraine war in the first you know two weeks or so. So these are pretty big sample sizes, you know. And what they found, number one, the one that looked at the Ukraine stuff, found that that I think most of the tweets about it were from bots. Number one, and ninety percent of those were not pro-Russian bots, but pro-Ukraine bots. And you know, you can imagine which governments are going to be the ones that are going to be putting the bots in favor of, of Ukraine. I mean, it's, it's obviously not going to be Russia. Um, number two, the, the the other study, the one that looked at tweets, and they're not just tweets, looked at Facebook posts and all manner of other social media um, activity, found that, you know, it was by far, again, it was tweets that were aligned with US and Western foreign policy more general, uh, generally that were the most influential and most active across all these different social media networks. But, you know, we don't hear about that stuff. And by the way, I don't think that is is what's like driving, you know, political opinion in, around the world. You know, I don't, I don't think bots one way or another are really all that decisive. But it shows you that, you know, th this whole thing we focus on, 
Russian bots, Iranian bots, Chinese bots. And it's, it's I think, a, a big bunch of misdirection. I think that, okay, I've been thinking about this. And I feel like one of the ideological effects of capitalism is this generalized sense that like they wouldn't make it if it didn't sell or they wouldn't put their energy into it if it didn't work because it's this rests on this belief that like the market is completely rational. I think that we should divorce two phenomena. One, the creation of bot operations and to their effect or influence. Like, I think it is true, actually, that there are entities out there that are setting up laboratories to create large swarms of disinformation and influence, social media influence technologies of a variety of sorts, right? And like I was saying to you guys before, maybe before we started recording, like I have personally had experience interacting with entities that I then came to really believe were like probably bots. Okay, so it's like somebody's out there and somebody's making them. That doesn't mean that they're working for their intended purpose. They might be working to make me feel crazy and irritated, but they're, I don't think, working to influence elections in the way that perhaps is the like intended effect. Do you see why I'm divorcing those two things? There there was a Financial Times piece recently about, you know, Russia's plan to basically fool Africa. You know, those silly, those silly Africans who, you know, cannot think for themselves and clearly have to have that propaganda to, to drive their political opinions talked about this i think it was like a facebook network or a social media network of like eighty thousand followers you know we're talking about a, a, a continent with you know well over a billion people and apparently this is supposed to have done it and then they put this map where on the one side you know it was it was the presence of pro-russian narratives or something along those lines and you know depending on how present they were i guess on, on, on these countries social media you know they were either darker red or lighter red and then and, and then you know the presence of bots uh, and it wasn't clear whether these were Russian bots or just bots in general, but the presence of bots and you know of the same same map, and it showed the I mean exact opposite correlation that what you'd expect, and certainly what the what the article was implying. It showed that where there were often not not in every single case, but often where there was the most pro-Russian narratives, there were less bots, and then. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the opposite, where there were there were the least uh, pro-Russian errors, there were the most bots. So I don't know what, what that tells you. That could be in many things. That could potentially mean that there's more bots in the places where the, they want to convince people. I don't know. Uh, it could also mean that these things are completely ineffective. There's a lot of different ways that you could slice it. But but again, it shows to me that this whole thing is, as everyone's been saying, kind of a ginned up panic to distract away from both political errors and also just, you know, other types of malfeasance. You know what? I'm going to disagree with everything that's been said. I think that everything is a PSYOP, including this podcast. Uh, so if you're listening, congratulations. Uh, you've just heard Disinformanskaya. Uh, anyway, no, folks, you caught us in media res. Uh, it's the Michael and Us podcast. We're back. I am, as always, Luke Savage. With me is my co-host. Will Sloan. And, you know, there are some subjects so important, some subjects with such gravity that Luke and myself are not equipped to deal with them alone. So on this very special panel episode, we've recruited a grand total of three Jacobin writers and one friend of cinema to talk about uh, the 1995 (laughs) comedy film Empire Records. Joining us to discuss this film are Megan Day and Bronco Markatich from Jacobin Magazine. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hey. Glad to be here. Bronco, did I pronounce your name correctly? That's you my first slightly, question. 
you, you made a little mistake. Matcha teach. Matcha teach. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've known you for what five years now, and I think we're, <laughs> I think we're making progress. It's usually past the like the six year mark. I think that really. Could be for that. So, <laughs> yeah, we got a little, little bit of time. Well, folks, in the depths of 2020, I think it was 2020, maybe it was 2021. I don't really remember. Time has been refracted over the last few years. Uh, But Megan and Bronco joined us for what I think is one of the biggest bangers of a Michael and Us episode. This was, of course, our symposium on uh, the movie You've Got Mail, uh, a movie about... Uh, well, what's that movie about? Uh, How? Uh, It's a delightful romantic comedy about two souls who find each other. It's a it's a, it's a movie that fetishizes by that fetishizes bipartisanism. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it shows That's that right. uh, having your small business destroyed by someone is not an obstacle to still falling in love with them. <laughs> having having your family's entire uh, legacy just absolutely trampled underfoot is should not stop uh, the progress of love. And now, by coincidence, we'll be talking about another movie in which a venerable business is threatened by the march of progress, but one which might have, uh, well, we'll we'll also have a happy ending, but from a slightly different angle than You've Got Mail, uh, a movie that comes from a gentler time in the 1990s. Anyways, before we get to the movie, uh, which, you know, basically a sort of warm, uh, warm bath of Gen X nostalgia, but before we come to that... Megan and Bronco are, of course, with us, and uh, both of them had uh, appearances recently, which I'm hoping we can talk about. Uh, Bronco, you sat down with Russell Brand on uh, on his show, and Megan, you attended a debate uh, and delivered a speech at the Oxford Union. What was the background uh, behind the speech, and, and what was the debate all about? So, yeah, I got invited. I was very honored to get invited to go participate in a debate at the Oxford Union, which is a very old debating society. It's probably the old. I think it's the oldest debating society that exists. I don't know. Anyway, it seems it's fancy. It's prestigious. It made me feel good when I got the invitation. Um, and then I was asked to specifically argue that the American dream has become a nightmare, which I was like, okay, slam dunk. I mean, who's going to argue against that? Good luck to them. So I said yes. And then they changed the topic to the American dream has become a global nightmare, which on first glance, that is fine because it's like sure america messes things up everywhere so that's you add it in global that doesn't make it hard right but actually if you think about it that totally changes the meaning because the american dream has become a nightmare just means people had dreams and then those dreams didn't work out and now their lives are a nightmare the same people who were dreaming are the people to whom the nightmare is happening but if you say the american dream has become a global nightmare you are saying that the act of dreaming itself is perpetrating harm on someone who is not the dreamer which is actually very difficult to argue but i had already said yes and i wanted to make the case that american imperial hegemony and, and uh the american commitment to exporting neoliberal capitalism across the world has in fact been a nightmare for people globally speaking so i just had to like puzzle out how i was gonna make this case uh in a way that was actually consistent with the resolution solution at hand. Um, So that was hard to like retrofit it. I ended up just basically arguing that the American dream can be defined in two different ways. There's the dream of ordinary people, and then there's the dream of American elites. And the latter has, in fact, inflicted harm across the globe. And I gave like a lot of supporting evidence to this effect and gave an impassioned plea against um, the American elite's dreams of, of world domination. So that was how I kind of squared that circle. Uh, my team lost this debate. It was very, it was very, very close. 
And I spoke to people afterward, and it did seem like the reason that we lost was because, not because the speeches were not sort of like compelling or convincing from a political or moral or ethical standpoint, but because the resolution was set up very strangely and that we hadn't actually shown causality between American dreaming, per se, and global nightmaring. I think it was um, a Russian bots myself. I think it was I disinformation. Think it might, it might have been Russian bots. I'm just glad well, that we, we know the answer. The American dream is great. And we should all embrace it. It's been settled. It's been settled. The, the the students of Oxford University voted and they've settled it. The American dream is fine. It's not a nightmare. No, I mean, look, I, I actually spoke to a lot of the students afterward and many of them were incredibly intelligent and super fun to talk to. I also did speak to a young man. Have you ever seen an undergraduate in a tuxedo with a poppy pin on it, passionately defending the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki because I hadn't before <laughs> I went to Oxford. And now, and now I know where those people are coming from. Now I know it's like a factory for, I mean, not, not all of Oxford, but certainly there's a track in Oxford if you want to turn yourself into one of the evildoers of the world. Yeah. You can get on a treadmill in Oxford and then spit out the other side as an evildoer. That's quite a thing to devote your life to. And I will say also that I was flattered to discover, now they, the communication, frankly, was pretty bad ahead of time. So I wasn't entirely sure who I was going to be debating. And then I was in this like the fanciest library. I had to walk through one antique library to get to another antique library. And in the inner library, I was dressed in my little like fancy outfit. It was literally the same outfit that I'd worn to my wedding. So I like, do not have enough fancy clothes for, for this. <laughs> and so I started chatting up a person who was in there feeling a bit out of place and um, very gregarious American guy found out that he was a debater who was on the other team, did not know him from Adam. And then somebody came around and said, would you like another drink, Senator? And it was a Senator. <laughs> it was former Senator Scott Brown. Um, he's my friend now. He tried to destroy the ACA with his bare hands and he's my buddy. And and also, uh, <laughs> at least to me, you know, the, the, what I think of when I hear that name is the fact that he, uh, well, one, he got, he got beaten by Elizabeth Warren, but he took Ted Kennedy's seat um, running very hard uh, as a war and terror hawk. You know, I'm very much the embodiment of the American dream becoming a nightmare for uh, millions of people around the world. So I think people should go watch his, if you're going to watch one other contribution besides mine, and I do hope people will go to YouTube and watch my contribution. I think you should watch Scott Brown's. I don't want to caricature it too much, but the basic vibe that one gets from him is sort of like a, like a, come on attitude. Like he's like, he's like, oh, so like America is like the bad guy. Come on. Like, like, so like, oh, there are like problems and it's all America's fault. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like that was his whole contribution. It was very funny. Yeah. I mean, well, what, what about startups? Oh yeah. And then he did say, he did cite the number per year of startups that America has compared to other nations around the globe to make the point that the American dream is alive and well. And also I don't actually don't know how that relates. That, that reminds me of that extract that's going around because Eli Lake wrote this <laughs> defense of the Iraq war. I mean, Jesus Christ. Uh, talk about talk about people <laughs> devoting themselves to ghastly things. Uh, yeah, wrote this defense of the Iraq war on the 20th anniversary. And I, I have not read it, uh, although I, I think I will have to because of just how horrendous that sounds. But one of the things that, that he writes is that, well, look at, you know, before the war, no one in Iraq had cell phones. Now it's like 70% of people have <laughs> Cell phone coverage. Oh man! Like, well, you know, maybe, maybe that's civil war and all those hundreds of thousands of people dying was worth it. It's like, yeah. Do you know how many incubators there are in Tikrit now? Yeah. Well, you know, you got to weigh it up. There's Abu Ghraib, sure, but then also, you know, Wi-Fi. So. 
Um, I, I want to I distinguish between two different definitions of the American dream. I think this is a really interesting conversation about whether or not there is such a thing. I think that there are two different definitions of the American dream. I think that the first one is the dream of ordinary people, and the second one is the dream of a small elite minority in politics and industry. So ordinary people dream of freedom and security. They dream of a society where their basic needs are met, where they're liberated and enabled to build loving, strong families and deep, meaningful connections and relationships and communities and pursue passions of the heart and mind and take full advantage of the beauty and enjoyment that the world has to offer. These are universal desires. They're not American ones. But America has promised since its inception to be or at least strive to become that place and to welcome and nourish those who seek to pursue this dream. That's the spirit of the words that are inscribed at the base of the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The dream of the Honduran immigrant in California, the dream of the Nigerian immigrant in New York, and the Vietnamese immigrant in Houston, Texas, the dream of my ancestors who came from Britain and France and Germany looking for freedom and security, this dream is no menace to the globe. Not at all. So I'm here speaking in favor of the proposition, though, which is that the American dream has become a global nightmare. I think that the former dream, the dream of ordinary people, it's beautiful, it's a definitionally human vision. And to the extent that America has promised to be a society in which this dream could be realized, that is a noble thing. But America has never fulfilled that promise for its own citizens, be they immigrant or native-born, nor has it fulfilled its promise to be a beacon and protector of democracy around the world, ensuring that the dream can be realized in other countries as well. The reason for its failure is that economic and political elites in America dream differently. Their American dream has had disastrous consequences around the world. It is in this sense that the American dream has become a global nightmare. Bronco, what is Russell Brand really like? Is he uh, like he is in such films as Arthur and Get Him to the Greek, or are there other sides to him? Uh, yeah, I mean, as prestigious a, a format uh, as, as the Oxford Union to be invited on. Some would say, say more. <laughs> <laughs> I went on Russell Brand's show. You know, I didn't really have that much of a communication with him off the show. I mean, actually, I didn't have any. I don't know why I'm saying as much. I didn't have any. It was just, uh, I just dealt with his producers. Um, I feel like that's, you know, probably a wise thing. I think that you want to probably protect the host, especially if he's a, a famous movie star from, from the guests to some extent. But based on based on my interview with him, he seems very much in person as he is on the movies. You know, I mean, and if you watch any interview with him, I feel like there's always this sort of chaotic energy that he brings to interviews. He has a kind of reputation these days. I mean, you often see people on sort of soft left Twitter, you know, kind of slagging on him. Uh, he has a reputation for being, for want of a better term, kind of like Taibi adjacent. Um, what's he, what, what's your perception of him, like his politics, uh, just where his head's at right now? What was it like to talk to him? I mean, I don't agree with everything that he says, which, by the way, I don't agree with everything anyone says. I mean, Jesus Christ. And, and you know, I mean, any network. If, you, if I went on CNN, there would be a bunch right. of stuff that CNN puts out that I, I'd be like, uh, that's wrong, or, mm -hmm. oh my God, I can't believe that you would even say that or make that argument. So this idea that, you know, uh, oh, some some places are okay to go on and some places aren't is, to me, completely ridiculous. I think his, his politics are kind of, you know, it can be a little bit all over the place. I, I think he has a lot of the right sympathies. You know, I think, I think in general, he's, you know, very much cares about nuclear war, for one, uh, which is shockingly rare. 
there at this moment. Um, and that's, that's why he had me on. Um, and that, you know, I'm glad that someone out there is, is, is talking about that and talking about the risks, but also, you know, it very much cares about working people is concerned about civil liberties, the, you know, centralization of power. Uh, he's concerned about corporate power. Sometimes, you know, that takes him to certain places that I, I may not necessarily completely agree on. I, you know, I, I'm in favor of the vaccine mandates. I think they were completely fine. Um, but I also recognize that there is a legitimate and, and reasonable critique of vaccine mandates from the left. You know, Jeremy Corbyn opposed them as well. So, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a, a reason to, to jump down someone's throat. But, you know, yeah, like I said, I, I think uh, on the whole, I don't watch all of his shows, but I've, I've seen a bunch of his, his YouTube videos. I think he's a very effective communicator, and I think that he raises a lot of important issues that a lot of people don't, you know, that, that people have just sort of stopped uh, talking about. And, you know, I think to just focus on the stuff that you disagree on, disagree with him on, and to say, well, that that makes him completely beyond the pale, I think is is pretty ridiculous. Well, at some point within the last, I don't know, year, there was, you know, a moment where it was clear, like, someone had introduced him to Jacobin because he has discussed numerous Jacobin articles on his show. So I, I was hoping you were going to be able to tell us how exactly that happened, but it sounds like you didn't get to talk to him outside of the interview itself. You know, he has a whole team. It's not it's not just Russell Brand. And I think his team, I think they read widely. I mean, if you watch his videos, you know, Jacobin pops up there, Common Dreams pops up there. There's a lot of, uh, you know, for, for all the this attempt to paint him as this kind of like right winger, um, which I, I think is, by the way, is completely absurd. It's just based on a few positions that people had cherry picking he, he's clearly reading or his team is is clearly reading a lot of left-wing stuff and and you know he has a pretty decent audience as well and i think it's important for the left to be able to talk to people um especially people who might not otherwise come across things that we write or say well uh it is rex manning day on the podcast so let's phase into our discussion of 1995's empire records just let me introduce you to everybody. Uh, this is uh, Gina, Roy, Lucas, AJ. The staff of Empire Records had the coolest jobs on earth. Do you think this story is already written? Or do you think a bold and courageous act can change the course of history? Something happened to me last night in Atlantic City. Did you win anything? No, I did not. But Lucas blew it. Everyone knew it. You're gonna buy Empire? Well, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> the money is gone. Where's it going to? I think it's recirculating. We're turning us into a music town? I have to pay for what Mr. Brilliant here did. I'm the idiot, you're the screw-up, and we are all losers. Now, five friends have one day to decide what to do with the rest of their lives. AJ loves Corey, not the whole story. Today is the day that I'm gonna tell Corey how I feel about her. That I, uh, love her. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible for someone to be in love with someone else and not even know it? In this life, there are nothing but possibilities. Uh, Luke had never seen this movie. I saw it once at my high school movie night when I was in uh, grade nine, I think. Uh, I don't know what Bronco's relationship is, but I do know that Megan suggested this movie. And I think Megan has a long history with this movie. And judging by uh, what you tweeted earlier today, I think it's kind of a comfort watch for you. So just to kick things off, I'm kind of interested in hearing, Megan, what your relationship is with the movie. Yeah, this is like, to me, one of the coziest movies that exists. So I think I watched this when I was maybe 12 or 13. And I remember distinctly being like, 
well, there it is. Like, that's how I want to live. I want to be slightly alternative and I want to have a cute group of friends. And like a lot of my fantasies stemming from watching this movie centered around working at a really cool small business. And maybe it's maybe it wasn't a record store. Maybe it was a bookstore. Maybe it was a really cool cafe or something like that. But like the idea that like your 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 social needs, your romantic needs, your needs for art and culture, you know, and specifically subculture, were all going to be met at the same place that you were going to get your paycheck. And it was really going to be like a family, but also a counter hegemonic family that was like standing somehow against the tide of mainstream <laughs> corporate culture. I mean, this was like, for some reason, it just hit me like, right. I was like primed for it. I, I have no idea how I got primed for that. But I was like, I, it just washed over me like a fantasy. And I remember distinctly that my grandpa and my step-grandma took me, I was not close with them. So they took me on a cruise when I was like 13 or 14, which was like unbearable. It was like an unbearable experience for me. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that we had to like eat dinner at five and there was nothing to do on the cruise. And it was like a nightmare of, of boredom. And I was just listening to the Empire Records soundtrack on repeat, fantasizing about basically the exact opposite of this like all Olive Garden ass old person cruise in the Gulf of Mexico that I was going to, you know, I was going to like go to a cool like college in a college town and I would get a job at a record store, a cafe, and I would have all these friends and we would all dress cool, listen to cool music. And, and there'd be no work involved at the work. It would just oh, be no. listening to the records and dancing. And <laughs> it's not work. It's sort of like tasks, like almost right. like cooperative tasks. Right. Um, so it really is a fantasy of work. And I actually do think that Empire Records in some ways set me on a, you know, you can never really identify any particular origin and I would not elevate this over many other origin stories, but like, you know, it deepened my commitment to what was at the time termed alternative culture. I don't think that that label is in use anymore, but that in turn put me in touch with alternative politics, which ultimately, you know, like primed me for turning into a socialist when the objective and political conditions aligned to make that a viable, you know, viable political position. So like, you know, Empire Records, yeah, it played a pretty big part in my biography. Wow, I, uh, I mean, I, I have nothing to follow uh, for that that very intimate connection. The movie. This was off my pop culture radar for a very long time. Embarrassed to say, and it was only a, a few years back that I was um, I was in a bar actually, and it was um, it's closed down now, unfortunately, the Boiler Room in Chicago. But there was it was it was bought out by a larger conglomerate. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and they and they don't let you play the cranberries anymore. It was, I think, a product of gentrification. But you know, uh, at the same time, I've heard some not great things about the management there. So I don't want to. <laughs> so, that's foreshadow foreshadowing the theme of what my other comments yeah are about. yeah <laughs> but i mean yeah uh possibly even worse uh stuff than than you know we we see uh in, in the movie but anyway uh you know i don't want to either either praise it or slander it lest i get sued or something but um uh, they used to play they would play movies you know silently and you would sit there at the bar and drink a beer and, and chat and watch you know whatever's going on so I, that's how i first saw the movie uh just without sound and then uh and i think i've seen you know some scenes here and there uh afterwards because it would just be on tv or something um and then i finally because of this podcast it finally led me to take the plunge into the the world of empire records and so here i am well i saw this movie as i said in grade nine and i had no particular reaction to it and then i saw it again this morning and even though i barely remembered it i do think my experience with it was very different than it would have been in grade nine just you know having lived in the adult world now i know that it's not actually like this it's very you know it's very it's very Tragically. different you know but within the last year 
I think within the last six months, I watched a little movie called Clerks. Maybe you've heard of it. I I watched Mm -hmm. that for the first time since I was like a teenager. And I mean, this movie came out, I think, a year and eight months after Clerks debuted at Sundance. And so I have to assume it must have been heavily inspired by that movie. It's sort of it's sort of like the uh, mainstreaming of, of what Clerks was. And what's funny about that is, you know, watching Clerks again, I was surprised to find that I thought it was actually a pretty good movie. I was very surprised by that. And something that Clerks conveys, which is another like one long day at a business movie from the perspective of the grunt employees, Uh, Something that that movie conveys is sort of the crushing boredom and ennui of working at the convenience store. And, you know, the characters in that movie have, they've either just graduated or just dropped out of college. They're sort of staring down their adult lives, but then also the possibility of success is receding further and further as they're not quite sure what to do with their lives. And the scenes that are so famous in that movie where they're talking about Star Wars or they're talking about, you know, pop culture and that sort of thing, you get the impression that those are these sort of temporary reprieves from the overwhelming boredom of it all. That's them sort of stealing time away and claiming it for themselves. And the little acts of rebellion that they do, the being rude to customers and that sort of thing, that's to fight the crushing ennui of this job. So I had that movie in my head thinking about how it was, in some ways, even though it has the same structure as Clerks, it's sort of temperamentally and philosophically very different. But then also what I had in my head was that Kevin Smith, the maker of that film, went on to, you know, what you were saying about alternative culture. He doesn't have an alternative bone in his body. Like the second he became part of the mainstream, you know, he's he's a YouTuber who loves Marvel movies now. Um, anyway, watching this movie... You know, it, it's this kind of like mainstream, like corporate bastardization of a movie like Clerks. But then also, I think in some ways that the fact that it can inspire you, Megan, to like pursue an alternative vision, whether artistic or political, I think is, is kind of sweet. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't feel very strongly about this movie, but I can't I can't really hate it when I hear that. Before we get into, you know, a, a kind of a systematic discussion of the movie. Uh, perhaps we could talk a little bit about what its cultural reputation and, and legacy is, because this is not a movie that was well received at the time. It was a huge commercial failure. It was critically panned as well. There was a review in Variety, which derisively referred to it as a soundtrack in search of a movie. I've always kind of known it as just vaguely as sort of like, oh yeah, that's one of those 90s movies that some people like, but also some people don't like it. That was about the extent of my relationship with this film. So, I mean, what is this film? legacy in the culture, if any, and what is its reputation? I think my my history might be instructive here. I think that it was supposed to be made for the Gen X alt generation that it's depicting, and those people hated it, but that there were younger people who had no cultural affiliations or attachments and didn't know anything about whether or not a movie was good or bad, just enjoyed the sort of like basic outline of the story and the general vibe that was being cultivated who latched onto it. And the reason I'm saying this is because in my conversations anecdotally with people over the course of my decades on this earth, I have found that millennials prefer Empire Records to Gen Xers. Like there are people who watched it when they were like young, you know, people who watched it younger than younger than I was, people who watched it when they were like nine or 10 who thought it was really cool and wanted to be like that when they got older. Whereas like Gen Xers, 
didn't like it. I think I would guess it probably something similar is true for Reality Bites. I seem to remember Reality Bites getting a very negative or critical response from the types of people that were being portrayed in the film Reality Bites. Yeah, I, I sort of perceive that movie and this movie as being part of this almost corporate response to movies like Clerks or Slacker or any of those sort of genuinely indie movies of the early 90s that played at Sundance. It's kind of like, oh, we got to we got to get in on this Gen X thing. Um, and I think the fact that I saw this one, this is anecdotal, but the fact that I saw this movie at my grade nine movie night speaks to the reality that it maybe resonated more with people who were aspiring to this kind of lifestyle, who had no experience with it than people who actually knew what it looked like. Well, especially because of the ethos of those people to begin with, like the Gen X alt people, like you could, you could never have pleased them with a movie about Gen X alt people. That was a part of the ethos of the whole thing from the very beginning, especially from the beginning of grunge, the idea that someone would actually like like or pay attention to what you're doing was repulsive and they're worthy of only scorn and derision for even approaching you, right? So like, it's interesting that you say Reality Bites, though, that you, that you compare it to Reality Bites. I agree. Though I also think Reality Bites tried to inoculate viewers by having that storyline about Ben Stiller's character trying to cannibalize Gen X culture right, but, right. in the mainstream media. <laughs> and it was unsuccessful. They were like, see, we wrote a character in here who's doing the thing that you you might think we're doing, but we're obviously not doing it because we wrote him in here and people saw through it and they weren't interested. Well, and also there's another political point here, but uh, this movie did, uh, I just checked actually, that this movie did, uh, I think, launch a couple, a few different pretty major careers. I mean, Rainer Zellweger, I think this was a year before Jeremy Maguire, you know, and then this was, I think, also two years after the that Aerosmith video that Tyler appeared in famously that, that sort of put her on the map first. And so, you know, this is a stop out and this movie is, is pretty crazy. I've never seen stats on it, but I would expect that it was probably really good for various bands too because you say soundtrack in search of a movie i totally agree and also great soundtrack i mean honestly those songs are good like a lot of those songs are really good like i'm not even saying that like it's not like a nostalgia thing like i actually some of the bands are fantastic the innocence mission had a song on this soundtrack that like really i know brought them to much wider acclaim and great attention great great band genuinely good band and several others on the soundtrack as well so probably even the fake song is is a very good yeah i get it stuck in my head sometimes (laughs) with the sugar high at the end the fundraiser song you mean? Oh yeah. Well, I was thinking of the uh, the, the, the Rex, Rex Manning. Oh, the song. Rex. I, yeah. I get that one stuck in my head too. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I think Rex Manning as a character. I mean, I'm again speaking anecdotally, but I think he's kind of become a, a cultural signifier. I think that's a character who's lived on as you know an embodiment of a certain kind of guy. It's it's meant to be a parody of, of Robert Palmer, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that was my read of it, right? Like especially by that point, because what well, that's like '95. So by that point, Palmer was probably a bit past his, his heyday. By the way, a Fans of trivia will be happy to know that Rex Manning is played by Maxwell Caulfield, who you may know as the star of Grease 2, the ill-fated Grease 2. I don't know anything about the plot of Grease 2, but it, does he play like Kanicki or Danny Zukov or like is no, it he's, new characters? He's the uh, it's new characters. It's it's the next the next year. And it's uh, uh and it, he plays the kind of John Travolta type. He's a ner- he's a nerdy guy who uh, reinvents himself as uh, as a sort of motorcycle dude at night called uh, the the mystery rider. It's been twenty five oh, years it, since I've seen Grease two, so I don't it, know. It was but... a, a flip of the the gender roles from the original movie. Yes, always, very always much a so. classic lazy filmmaking thing. To do. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, one possible thing that you could point to with this movie's legacy. I mean, I, I think maybe it, 
I don't know. It may be going too far to ascribe it to this movie only, but there's definitely, it's like a forerunner of a lot of the stuff that became popular in the 2010s, you know, the, the, the workplace comedy, you know, The Office, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the idea that your uh, workmates, uh, your family, and your workplace is kind of like your life. It's the it's the best place to be. It feels like this is kind of, you know, I'm, I'm sure you could point, point to movies before this that, that did a similar thing, but there's definitely kind of a, a through line from this movie into into that. Okay, I have a follow-up thought to that, Bronco. I agree with the, like, it's a heartfelt workplace comedy drama, so there's definitely a through line. However, let's take The Office and Parks and Rec, which are very different from each other, but let's talk about their commonalities. In The Office, their workplace is genuinely objectively shitty but they just kind of <laughs> but, but they just, just kind of can't help but love it anyway because like home is where the heart is etc and like in parks and rec it's also supposed to be shitty i i would i would say that there's a kind of like gentle ethnographic snobbery where it's like i can't believe these people are taking this so seriously they just work in the parks department in some shitty town in indiana but like you know so it's supposed to be objectively shitty but again the collection of people kind of make it kind of charming in spite of that the main difference with empire records and this is one of the reasons why i wanted to talk about it is that it's a full-blown fantasy of your workplace actually being cool and good so something happened between 1995 and 2005 and i think we all know what happened which is that like actually maybe there were workplaces that were like slightly cooler and more good in the 90s i don't think it was generalizable but i think that for a certain subset of young creative types being able to work in a cafe or in a record store or in a bookstore actually did feel good it wasn't it wasn't a total fantasy but it was i mean okay let me just put it this way a job is a job and we'll get into that later and small businesses are genuinely ex- exploitative etc but when i i watched empire records this fantasy implanted itself in my brain i lived in san antonio where nothing cool was happening so i would go to austin on a regular basis my grandmother lived there And I would always take the time to go into Waterloo Records, which was an independent record shop in Austin, because it reminded me of Empire Records. And because, you know, Austin's like a college town and et cetera. You've seen Slacker. You know what the deal was in that period in Austin. I actually did get the impression that it seemed like a cool place to work. The people who worked there were able to put the music that they liked on the speakers. And the Austin Alt Weekly was being sold there. And there were like cool looking people sitting out front with like a cup of coffee reading the Austin Alt Weekly on a work day. So like, I think that there may be, okay, there's a couple of different ways to explain this. One, it's possible that a certain very small subset of people actually was able to live some version of this fantasy in the 90s. And this was a movie about that fantasy or maybe not maybe i'm just blowing out of proportion and actually jobs always kind of suck and are exploitative but in any case it's different from by by the time you get to the office and parks and recreation we're not even tarrying with that anymore there's no point in even pretending that your job is anything but a total joke right But like clerks the movie that this movie is basically like the gentrified version of is all Mm -hmm. about how a retail job is shit and i feel like one of the reasons why this movie maybe didn't resonate with critics and gen x audiences but did resonate with uh millennial audiences is because it didn't quite fit into that. Like it didn't seem, you know, for a movie that's partly about like that particular like Gen X obsession with authenticity, it didn't it didn't seem authentic in that way. It felt like a corporate version of Clerks. It felt like the, hey, you know, what, what about this cool Gen X workplace that's cool okay. and that has cool people at it? Okay, I agree with that. And actually now I want to revise my statement, which, or I just want to build off of that. Maybe like, you know, maybe the reason that it seemed so cool to me to work at Waterloo Records, as opposed to any of the other places that I uh, was introduced to the concept of working at when I was like 14 or 15, was that I'd never had a job before. 
And so maybe Empire Records, like clerks was for people who already had had jobs and already understood that a job is a job. And Empire Records was for people like me, I had never had a job and probably correctly, I'm just going to try to nuance my previous statement, probably correctly ascertained that there was something slightly less soul sucking about a working at an indie record store than various other workplaces. But we'd never had a job. I had never had a job before because I was like 14 years old. So I didn't really understand drudgery. And certainly there's no drudgery depicted whatsoever in Empire Records. You would think that mainly what you do at a record store is take a break and go back to the break room. A tremendous amount of just like the entire staff is, is, is back there. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder the store is going out of business. All these people, all it's like there's, there's an, only so much work for like one employee. Well, if I can proffer a theory of my own on the question of why the film seems to have appealed more to millennial audiences than Gen X ones, and, and maybe this can kind of uh, take us into a, a more uh, detailed discussion of the plot and the movie itself. But I mean, it seems to me like uh, this is something that we lean on to excess on this podcast, but I mean, I think it's, it very much applies here. This to me felt like such an end of history movie and a film that that's right folks. this period <laughs> yeah there it is again drink but it's you know i had never seen it before until today but it felt like a very cozy movie to me as well and if i can offer a theory as to why that is i think it's because people of our generation experienced the 1990s in the sense that we were you know, present for them. But it's, you know, as as you just said, Megan, I mean, it's not like, you know, none of us had had jobs by this point. But furthermore, we experienced the 1990s. Like, if you think about all the 90s films and TV shows that you watched, like, in my case, at least, a lot of that consumption actually happened in the 2000s. So, like, this was already over and you were kind of, like, coasting on the fumes. Whereas, I think when this movie came out, the world that it depicts was very much still alive and the fantasies that it's projecting and conveying and channeling were still very much live as well. I mean, just, just to kind of set up the, the universe of the film and kind of the, the, the moment in history that it is a product of, I would like to quote from something that one of the characters says early on when he's assuring the manager of the record store, Joe, having lost, you know, 9,000 very precious dollars in Atlantic City. Uh, he assures him everything is going to be okay. And Joe asks him, how do you know this? And he replies, who knows where thoughts come from? They just appear. So, you know, in the context of the film, that line makes sense. But I think it is also inadvertently a summation of the post-materialist world that produced this film. Folks, it's the <laughs> 1990s. We're all liberal Hegelians now. Ideas just appear here. <laughs> well, uh, and let's also give the, the film its due. I mean, I think the other reason that it's it feels cozy to use that that terminology is it's it's, it's a good movie. It's it's a great, it's well-written. The, 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 the fun characters, you want to spend time with them. You know, it's, it's nice being in that world you know there's a there's a plot but really the movie is just about hanging out uh with with these characters and i mean that's that's the the parallel i think uh, to some extent with uh, you've got mail which is also a really well made well written charming romantic comedy with two great leads of superb chemistry but whose politics is incredibly at the same time very just off and and sometimes just bizarre well, yeah, it's not a plot-driven movie. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's what Quentin Tarantino would call a hangout movie. You know, one that's just like a series of scenes where you get to kind of live with these characters and enjoy their company. Um, I, I found some of them a little annoying, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would have liked to have seen them do a little more work, honestly. 
<laughs> but uh, but I hey, if, so if, other people, if other I people do, love them, do you know <laughs> the <laughs> amount of money that I would pay to be able to gain admittance through some sort of like time space wormhole <laughs> oh. to the Empire Records break room for an afternoon <laughs> is a large sum of money. That's wonderful because yeah. it just to me it just feels like it's. I mean, that was what I thought maybe would happen when I entered the world of work was that I would get paid to hang out with my friends in a in, an, in a space covered in band posters mm-hmm. with like a bunch of unique characters who each had their own subcultural affiliations no. uh, far sadly. from it instead you get 10 arbitrarily assigned co-workers who you see more than your family and who <laughs> who you may really not like and i don't know about you guys but i personally can't stand my co-workers two of whom of course are joining i was us, gonna so. <laughs> say i was gonna say jacobin jacobin has dashed my dreams i would just like to interject here to say that we are actually living the empire records fantasy right now because the podcast is just the empire records hangout and it is work because people are paying money to hear this so you know the dream of the 90s lives on this is a COVID era uh, empire records where instead of hanging out in the same office and, and having fun uh, you're just on a zoom call in three different cities <laughs> occasionally talking to each other i mean uh, i do love that, that megan watched this movie and she identified with the teenagers having a great time and having fun and will watched it and he identified with the guy who owns the business who's like what isn't anyone doing any goddamn work around here? no i I, I identified with rex manning the washed up uh, rock star character who kind of has nothing more to give nothing more to say just coasting on past glories to an increasingly diminishing audience uh yeah that that's me you know i, I mean on a serious note i will say I, I worked at a fish and chip store for a bunch of my teens you know basically a family friends a friend friend owned it and then i i went to this bookstore uh, that my friend worked at when I, I went there you know partly the hours were better and the pay was better but also i was like oh look at all these guys like hang out and they have a lot of fun together and it seems like a really great place to to work and like and and in many ways that was true you know when i went there i made a lot of friends there and it was fun you know to to hang out with people my age and and you know you you would be able to talk about you know what the crazy stuff that happened at work that day and everything but it also was a really depressing place to work because not only was the you know i mean we were paid minimum wage the 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 owner would write in our pay slips every now and then oh congratulations you got a raise uh and what what they meant was that the government had made had raised the minimum wage by like 20 25 cents and they had uh, very generously deigned to, to pay us what the legal wage was um and you know and beyond that i mean i was a part-time worker so i worked you know weekends and, and, and a night or two during the week but i mean the full-time workers that worked there were often elderly women immigrants working class immigrants who were baking ends meat um and for them this was this was like you know for me it was a thing that i i would pop into every now and then and kind of you know so i could afford to i don't know go hang out with my friends on the weekend or you know take a trip or whatever uh, or, you know, to quote unquote, have fun with, with my coworkers. But for these people, I mean, this was their life. And it was it was tough, you know, being on your feet all day, having to walk around. Uh, you know, I mean, one person had a leg injury and, you know, she was hobbling around. She was an elderly woman who had to drive, you know, at least an hour from a different part of Auckland to get there. So my point is that, yeah, I mean, this this idea that Empire is a fantasy of what wage workers, small businesses is, is very much true because, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, th- this whole thing of doing tasks, putting CDs into places. It seems like a lot of fun when you when you film it a certain way, but in real life, it can actually be pretty not just dull and and menial and annoying, but also actually quite uh, physically uncomfortable and and tiring uh, and yeah, shitty. Uh, you know. Yeah, this is why I wanted to bring this up. This is why I wanted to talk about this movie actually. So I know I've said almost uh, universally good things about this movie because of my personal experience with it, but I also wanted to say that 
you know, I've thought about it a lot since then. I've watched it periodically. And this movie really fetishizes small businesses over large businesses. That's something that it's a, a weird inversion of You've Got Mail in that way. Or well, You've Got Mail also prioritizes the small business over the large business, but it has like a little surprise ending where whatever. we've You can go listen to that episode if you want to know more. But in this case, it's like a small business is under threat from a larger business. This is the common thing around this time period, the idea that there are like small indie brick and mortar stores that are going to be usurped by larger chain brick and mortar stores. I believe that Music Town is a reference. This is the chain that's supposed to take over Empire Records unless they raise enough money to save it. It's probably a reference to Tower Records. And just as an anecdote, Tower Records has also since gone out of business. It filed for bankruptcy in large part because of people, you know, pirating MP3s and then eventually streaming. But I think it was dead long before streaming even came along. And I remember, you know, being a partisan of Waterloo Records in Austin, Texas. I remember looking upon the Tower Records with scorn because of the, <laughs> the sort of impression that I'd been given from from watching movies like Empire Records that like small businesses were good and big chain businesses were bad. Of course, now Tower Records has been out of business in Austin for so long. I would be nostalgic to walk into a Tower Records. I would find that incredibly charming in the same way that I find it incredibly charming to walk into a remaining Borders or Barnes and Noble. Do they have Borders anymore? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. But then there's also that wave of nostalgia around like Blockbuster as well, like, like yeah, exactly. any of those big chains. Yeah. I was reminded a bit of that plot in another sort of Gen X adjacent movie, Wayne's World, where it's mm -hmm. like the whole thing is about, you know, the big network taking this charmingly amateurish public access show and like making it corporate and losing the authenticity of it. That was a real, uh, that was a real Gen X concern, which I have to say, I miss that as a broader cultural concern. The whole idea of the fear of selling out that seemed to preoccupy Gen X so much. I mean, their politics might have been quite incohate in other ways, but I miss selling out being a being a concern. I agree. Their politics were were terrible as we've as we've been discussing, but um, I think that you know, it's been like good to turn the tide away from this like very apolitical perception of selling out. But to the extent that we've completely dropped selling out as a concern, I don't think that that's helpful. I think that millennials tend to be like millennials, and certainly Gen Zers are all like clamoring to be influencers. No, gone, gone is the concern with selling out. And honestly, I think people could use a little dose of Gen X concern about selling. Out. Well, one thing I wanted to say about small businesses is like, you know, small businesses are actually, they're, I'm, I'm not going to say they're more exploitative than businesses. It's kind of apples and oranges. But I certainly around this time period, when I saw this when I was like 14, I just believed that small was good and big was bad. And that was the end of the story. If you look at the stats, they tell a completely different story. I, we have, I have in front of me an article by Matt Brunig in Jacobin. Matt Brunig is on this tip a lot about small businesses and some stats for you. In 2017, firms with a very small number, five to nine employees paid an average weekly wage of $849. But firms with 1,000 or more employees paid $1,793. That's over twice as much. So, and the same is true for benefits in 2016, only 20% of very small businesses offered health insurance. But for firms with 1,000 or more employees, that, that number was 99.8%, meaning 
meaning that it's basically universal in large businesses. Does that mean that large businesses are doing that out of the goodness of their hearts? God, no. They would love to not be doing any of that stuff. Their whole purpose is to turn a profit, which means they'd like to drive down labor costs as much as possible. But large businesses congregate workers in such a way that there are a lot of workers concentrated and they all have similar interests and it leads to pressure from the collective on the on management in a way that it is not true for small businesses. They also tend to be more alienating, which is something that I, as a viewer of Empire Records, wanted to avoid. I wanted to work for a place like Empire Records so that I wouldn't feel so alienated from my work. But the truth of the matter is that when you are alienated from your work, it actually facilitates an interest on your own bread and butter issues. Whereas when you work for a small business, especially like, you know, we've all seen this, like if you work for like a small like cafe owned by a nice couple, you know, you ask for a raise and what you get is called into the back room by a woman on the verge of tears saying she thought we were a family here, you know, and like that's, <laughs> and so like, if you're not going to get a raise, you're going to get someone, you know, it's basically going to feel like a fa- like a family drama, like you've like you've betrayed someone for asking for a raise. So I guess my point is that I at the time, I mean, I bought way into this, like, just, you could just imagine me like, Walking around, it's 2000, I don't know, three or some, 2002 or 2003. I got my water bottle with my human rights campaign sticker on it. I think it also probably has a PETA sticker on it. I'm going to an Ani DeFranco concert and like I'm picking up the Austin Alt Weekly and I am all about small businesses because I was like totally convinced that big was bad and small was good. And I, that's liberalism in a nutshell because it just, it really does completely excise any concern for power relations as they are actually played out in the business context, right? Well, this is a Hangout movie, and uh, thus far, this has been kind of a Hangout podcast. I mean, this movie is best remembered or most remembered for its its vibes rather than its plot. But I do think we, we should get into the plot a little bit for those who have not seen uh, 1995's Empire Records. Nice. Only an hour in. Great. <laughs> <laughs> not a Rex Manning day. I heard you on the wireless back in 52. As I already alluded to, the instigating event of this movie is that one of the employees at the store discovers that it's about to go out of business or rather be bought out by this larger conglomerate, as Megan just mentioned. Um, And he decides he's going to go to Atlantic City. Uh, There's a great Atlantic City montage where you see him go past, among other things, Trump Plaza. It's just amazing how Trump is like an Easter egg in absolutely everything made before like 2010. And uh, he wins his first game of, I guess it's craps, or his first roll of the dice, doubles the money, and then loses it on his second roll. So, uh, you know, gets back, tells his fellow employees, and these are basically the stakes of the film. Eventually he has to tell his manager, Joe, as well, in a scene where the soundtrack is uh, a cover of uh, Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe. There's a lot of use of music in a very uh, hyper-literal way in this movie. Later there's a scene where, you know, it's like one character confessing his love to another, and then it's just dire straits. I think pretty awful song, Romeo and Juliet. But so those are the stakes of the movie. Is Empire Records going to go out of business? Or rather, is it going to be bought out by a conglomerate? It turns out that the manager actually had Joe. He had a backup plan, which in keeping with the movies, you know, firm anchoring in the 1990s as well, which is his plan was to actually use the $9,000 to like buy a stake. So he's going to become part of the machine. We also learn along the way that Empire Records began as a family business. This is an interesting twist. 
It was started not as a record store, but as a toilet and bidet and bath store by the owner's grandfather, Joe's grandfather. And then we learned that his father, who was a beatnik, turned it into a record store. I don't really know what to do with that, but that is kind of the background on uh, on Empire Records. There's a ton of detail where the, the evil, well, the, you know, the, the crappy business owner shows up and he, he says something like, um, you know, I would have made so much money if I had sold toilets. And obviously we're not meant to sympathize with this character. We're meant to think of this character as pretty uncool and, and, and shitty. But the, the, the message there is like, uh, small businesses are good and, and what you should be doing is selling cool things. That's the thing that you're going to be aiming for. You know, it's not just having a, a small business. It's like a, it's like a small business with like heart and soul and not selling useless things like like toilet. Whoever needs a toilet anyway. I mean, let's be honest. It's very funny that like the antagonist here is like that classic archetype of like the evil, you know, would be, you know, toilet and bath tycoon. I think that's a first. I don't think I've ever seen that in a movie before. I, I think there might be a real world inspiration to this, which is actually confusing. So... I think that Tower Records actually began as Tower Drugstore. And I think so I think that that's the trajectory of Tower Records is that it was like a, a non-cool stuff family business that got big and sort of turned into a record store. But that's weird because Tower Records is supposed to be the analog to Music Town, which is the corporate giant that's going to take over Empire Records. So I have no idea what to do with that, except for that maybe they were doing a little research and they just liked some stuff and they just wrote it down and then they wrote it in and it doesn't really mean anything. And I mean, let's be honest, selling toilets is just inherently more hilarious than selling medicine. Yes. yes. Yeah, they should have made it a toilet store instead of a record store. Um, the, the character, Empire uh, Toilets. It would have been great. I don't know if it would have had the same <laughs> fantasy appeal for me as a 14-year-old, but maybe. I don't know. Maybe my personality would be totally different if it had. So Unfortunately, Big Toilet would have come along and, and, and destroyed that business as well. <laughs> On, on some other pod, on some other feed, there's like, you know, I don't know, some kind of like really weird sectarian podcast where, you know, they're talking about how like they were radicalized by working at like a toilet emporium. So the character of Rex Manning, I mean, on this uh, auspicious day for the record store, it happens to be Rex Manning Day. They're hosting this kind of washed up rocker from the 80s as he signs autographs for his dwindling fan base. Uh, where do you think Rex Manning fits in the imagination of this film? Is he representative in some way of like the potential disappointments of the adult world? Um, is he a sort of there but for the grace of God go I figure for these young hopeful people as they're struggling to like hold on to their authenticity? Yeah, they call him washed up, but that sort of suggests that he was at some point cool. And I get the vibe that I get from Rex Manning is that he hasn't ever been cool in his life. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know. I, I don't really know what the film is trying to signal about his past. What I think is going on here is that they're trying to say that music is not in itself alternative. There right. are bad forces in music that are the man. And then there are cool and good forces that say things like damn the man. And so they're using Rex Manning along with Music Town to illustrate that it's like an in-house family fight in the music, you know, industry. It's not it's not like music versus the rest of the world. The the call is coming from inside the house, I guess. And yeah, the reason that they want to do that is because like everyone is in danger of being like sucked into it. The more interesting character is actually the woman who works for Rex Manning. Because Rex Manning is he's already gone. He's he's he is what he is. He's a total hack. But she is on the fence, 
right? This, there's a woman in the movie who works for him who's actually seems to be deeply hurt. She's obviously some subcultural of some kind in the way that she's dressed, not in the same way that our, our main characters are. But she, you know, she thinks of herself as like a cool person. She's sitting in the immortal break room of Empire Records and they start telling her how shitty they find Rex Manning's music and basically how embarrassing it is that she works for him. And she's like genuinely hurt and embarrassed by this. And it drives her to actually quit her job because she wants to cross back over whatever that threshold is that divides the man from the people who say, damn the man. She's like realized that she's gone too far over the line and she can't live with it anymore. She can't bear it anymore. She has to get back over the line. You know, I agree with everything that's been said. I think this is my understanding of, of what the character signifies as well. But what, what do we do about the fact that the characters played respectively by Renee Zellwinger and Liv Tyler both find him like completely irresistible? We were talking a little bit about how the political economy of music had changed. And obviously, you know, the, the, you could make a, a almost a nostalgia, an Empire Records 2.0, where it's like a, yeah, the nostalgia for uh, a large music retailer that was still brick and mortar. But, you know, I mean, to me, I was like, well, you know, Rick's Manning is washed up. They keep saying he's very uncool. And yet, still, the guy is touring around the country. People are buying his albums, lining up to get singers from. I was thinking, I mean, he's doing pretty well for a washed up rock star. Whereas I think now, I mean, even, even the most successful band, now um i'm not making that much money because so much of it is just siphoned out by these streaming services very little of it goes to the artist it's very difficult now to actually make a living uh, as a musician even even you know very popular ones uh, they don't end up making tons of money in a weird way i was looking back at this and thinking you know as terrible as rick manning has it man i mean uh, i imagine to some extent some of the the artists of today would be looking back and, and sort of got <laughs> killed to, to be able to, to do as well as he was doing at this point well, I agree with that. I just feel like we still haven't answered the question as to how or why this guy in, in the plot of the movie is a heartthrob. Okay, all right. I thought about this a little bit in the, in the two minutes since you've asked it. And here's my attempt. I don't really know why. I mean, I think basically that, okay, this is what I think. Renee Zellweger's character, Gina, is not, I don't think, supposed to be particularly attracted to Rex Manning. In fact, I think that she is uh, kind of condescending to her friend, Corey, played by Liv Tyler, who is very attracted to Rex Manning. And Gina does eventually sleep with Rex Manning, but it seems entirely designed to get back at Corey after the two of them have an argument. So why is Corey attracted to Rex Manning? I mean, I think that's just a device in the movie to indicate or signal to us that she's like very naive. It's a kind of like a girlish desire. You know what I mean? And she sort of realizes the error of her ways when she tries to seduce Rex Manning and he is an absolute asshole to her. Um, there's a line that was cut from perhaps the version that you saw that makes it clear why he's like, he is actually a much greater asshole in the line that was cut. I watched it just now and I'm like, that line is gone. You can't tell why he's an asshole. It's a relatively disgusting. He like shakes a bottle of ranch dressing and says, I hope you like ranch as he's unbuttoning his pants, which makes it clear why oh. she, it makes it clear why she leaves the room in disgust. Otherwise it's a little confusing why she's done this. But as for like the function of Rex Manning vis-a-vis -vis the character of Corey, I actually think it all really has to do with the character of AJ, who's like the cute grunge boy with his little checkered cardigan sweater, who's like wants to go to art school. It's basically, again, this idea of the line. It's like pushing, the, the movie has a happy ending because Corey, played by Liv Tyler, realizes the error of her ways and crosses back over the line away from Rex Manning toward AJ, toward all that is good and pure, toward alternative 
subculture towards small business, toward damn the man ethos. And then and then AJ goes to the most anti-establishment place you can. The end of his arc is, well, I'm going to Harvard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. they, and then they both cross back over the line together. Hi. Hi. What's your name? Kathy. K-A-T-H-Y. Okay. You know, I've seen every episode of The Family Life. Oh, yeah? And you were my favorite singer in high school. Who's your favorite singer now? You! It's still you. Bye. Various other things do happen along the way. There is a shoplifter... Uh, who, you know, I I thought this was very funny. I mean, I guess this movie takes place over the course of one day, but to me, the temporality of it feels very strange. I mean, I guess it would because history's over in the universe of this movie, but they they accost the shoplifter. They have a whole sort of protocol. They obviously are getting like shoplifted all the time. They know exactly like, you know, what points outside to intercept him, etc. And then they sort of get him into the break room. And then I feel like there's a 30 minute stretch where ostensibly like they're waiting for the cops to arrive, but then he just becomes like part of the crew. And this shoplifter is just kind of hanging out. I don't know if that answers this, the question, but apparently I read on Wikipedia this movie was originally 40 minutes longer than the version we saw and took place over two days. Well, I think also worth noting that a shoplifter, uh, like Empire is such a cool place to, to work at that someone will literally get a gun and hold the employees hostage <laughs> to force them to, to let him work there because it's so cool. Yeah, because that's that's true. That's what it is about Warren. At the end, his name is Warren. This uh, juvenile delinquent's name is Warren. Um, and like it turns out at the end that all of his misbehavior and all of his antics and pranks and, uh, you know, also like, you know, threats of violence and so on were actually just him acting out because he was so jealous because he really wanted to work at Empire <laughs> Records. And, you know, we're all Warren when we're watching this movie. Like, they are convinced that yeah it's worth waving a gun around to get an opportunity to work at empire records okay i might just be speaking for myself here and why wouldn't you because as you know i think it's important to note for the listeners you know that the it's hammered home repeatedly that all the coolness of empire records and working at empire records is going to get sucked out as soon as it gets brought out by music town you know what was uh joe stay says you know keep dancing because uh when this place is a music town you ain't going to be able to dance you're going to have to take out your nose rings you're, you're not going to be able to wear a uniform very much uh made clear that the, the fun is over once this is brought out by a big business i also want to make another observation about warren before we move on which is this is like a minor observation but i think it's important at some point lucas lucas who has gambled away the money has been um i think like forced to sit in the break room on a chair and not leave a particular cushion so he's like sort of quarantined in the break room warren is also quarantined in the break room because he's a shoplifter and he's being kept there and waiting for the police and the two of them are having an interaction where lucas is like basically taking out the CDs that Warren was trying to steal and like making fun of him for trying to steal these particular (laughs) CDs. And he goes, rap, metal, rap, metal. And what I think is interesting about that is that the movie is trying to make a point, which is that all that is pure and good, all that is alternative and indie and damn the man ethos, it's subculture, not mass anti-culture. So there's something wrong in this worldview with rap and metal because they are mass aggressive anti-culture, whereas what we like 
is not the kind of like music that your parents hate that sells tons and tons of records. What we like is music that nobody's ever heard of before because they're not as cool as we are and they don't like go to shows at the cool local music venues and whatever, read the alt weekly like we do. So like there's a there's a music genre distinction there that I think is also has to do with like a political or worldview distinction. You know what that makes me think of? It makes me think of like alternative comedy, like alt comedy, you know, in the early 2000s, back when like the people who were filling stadiums were like you know the original kings of comedy like Bernie Mac and uh, Cedric the Entertainer and people like that or you know otherwise it was like Billy Crystal or that sort of thing um, alt comedy was like you know David Cross or like Patton Oswalt you know people who would who would talk about like like the nerdy stuff the stuff that you had to you, stuff that you had to be pop culture savvy to know about and and that stuff entirely incorporated into the mainstream by now uh, like you know the alt comedians are the comedy establishment at this point um, I, I feel like I feel like there's some equivalent in all alternative culture. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to follow that up by saying that I said anti-culture, which doesn't make any sense. Actually, what I meant was like mass anti-pop, like rap and and obviously not rap and not hip hop in its origins, but by this point in 1995 rap and like metal are like the anti-pop, but they're sold in the mall. You don't have to go to empire records to get them there. Everyone knows about them. Your parents know about them because there are 60 minute specials about the dangers that they're posing to you, the youth. So they're anti-pop and what empire records, what's cool is being like, not anti-pop, but literally to use a phrase that then became the name of a very popular record label around this time, sub pop. It's underneath the stratum of pop. It's beneath the surface. You would have to know people, know the right people in order to know about it, which is different from mass anti-pop. I also want to add, uh, mention one more thing that, that comes at the end of the movie, which relates to some of what we were talking about before. Uh, I can't remember who, but someone says that among the bad reasons, the, the reasons why it's bad that, that music town is going to take over the, the, the store, is that they're going to jack up prices. The idea that you know small business is going to be fair and they, they, they charge lower prices, whereas the big guys just want to bleed the consumers and, and jack it up. But I think actually it's it's often the opposite. I mean, that's that's what ends up putting small businesses uh, out of business by the big guys. It's that small businesses have much lower margins that they run on, so they have to have high prices, whereas you know the big guys could go, well, you know what, we can afford to just just make this uh, rock bottom. I mean, that's that's and, and, and basically do that until it drives uh, the small small guys out of business. And I mean, that's that's what Amazon has definitely done. I mean, that's that's their business model. That's part of the reason why people accuse them of, of monopolistic behavior. So it's interesting that the movie, I think, it doesn't totally even understand, you know, it's hard maybe in the right place, but it doesn't understand actually how this stuff really functions and ends up being a, being a topsy turvy. To, to speak uh, further to this movie's kind of status, which I think we've we've established pretty pretty firmly now, the status is kind of a, a, a 1990s fantasia about small business. I mean, there's literally a scene in this movie where Joe, the manager, beats Lucas up, like takes him back into the break room and like beats him up. And, you know, in the context of the movie, it's kind of meant as just this, like, almost charming, I feel, like, amusing little scene. But, uh, you know, it's just further to the movie's depiction of, like, labor and management as just kind of like one big happy family who have fundamentally the same cause, which is saving the store from the conglomerate, and the same immediate interest, and also just, like, the same shared interest in, like, certain kinds of music. Yeah, I was going to say, it's an important scene, actually, because what it shows is that Joe the manager is not figured as, like, a 
stranger boss, but as like a family member. It's like he's a big brother, actually. That's why that's why the scene is presented as charming is because like someone who like loves you and looks out for you, but is incredibly irritated by you and would like give you a noogie or maybe like sock you in the arm is like a big brother figure. Whereas like in Music Town, I do think that the film would hold that in Music Town, if your manager beat you up, that would be completely not chill because your manager is not going to have that relationship to you. And another scene, minor micro scene that points to this is that AJ at some point asks Joe, like, how do I tell Corey that I love her? Um, can you imagine going up to your manager and saying, I've got a crush on my coworker and I want to tell her about it, like asking for advice? It's clearly trying to show that Joe is like a big brother figure to the men slash boys who work at Empire Records. Yeah, and there's there's another, I can't remember which character who we learn, I think, about three quarters of the way through the movie. I'm actually forgetting the specifics of the scene already, but we learn that Joe, he's like, Joe rescued me or he got me out of some like tough times or something. Right. Perhaps somebody else remembers that scene a little better but uh, i think that's meant to illustrate the same thing what do we think about gina's i guess life because the <laughs> the whole thing is that she's worried about becoming like a mother which i can't remember completely is that she was raised by a single mom is that is that correct yeah and so she doesn't want to end up like a mother and i think at one point someone says you know you don't you don't have to end up like your mother if you don't want to and the idea is that it's a, it's a matter of personal choice and I, I guess the ending is meant to make it seem like you know she's up there she finally goes to sing and so therefore she's going to have a music career i guess is the implication that she's going to be in a band and she's going to do something with her life is that the case though i mean I is, guess, is gina gonna get up I there think and singing? here's here's what i have to say about about that I'm not going to accuse this movie of like lazy misogyny per se, but I'm going to say that it falls into a particular trope that I think is really common of teen movies of this era, which is that high school girls can have three things wrong with them. They can either be too slutty, too perfectionistic, or too weird and depressed. Those are the three types of girls that exist in American high schools. And we have all three of them represented here at Empire Records. Um, I think there's some like individual twists. You know, I like the characters, but I do think that it's like, you know, Corey's the one who's got her life totally perfect together, but is it really perfect underneath the surface? And Gina, she seems like she's uh, very desirable to boys and men, but is she really just exploiting herself and covering up for her like uh, insecurity issues? And then you've got Deb, who's like outwardly very weird and is the outcast. Um, but actually, there's something sort of like strong about this character underneath, even though she's very depressed and she's dealing with a lot, which is a common theme in movies and shows of this period, actually. So I think that's what's going on with the girl characters. I think they slot into some predetermined female archetypes. Well, at the at the movie's end, it turns out that, uh, you know, after a, a day or two days or whatever it is of, of hanging out, there is a rather simple solution to their predicament which is to hold a fundraiser, which they do. And I feel like the implication is that they're going to raise the funds necessary to, to save the record store. Do I have that right? Well, this is liberalism in a nutshell. What, have, haven't you thought of holding a fundraiser? It doesn't quite <laughs> add up to me. So, so Joe had 9,000 bucks, right? Well, is that what he had? And, and then Correct. that was he was meant to buy a stake in the store with just, with just $9,000. Then, I mean, did they raise 9000 in that one night? from that one concert for which is voluntarily giving money for, for a thing they could just watch for free from the street. They they raised I think six because I remember there being a scene where they counted 3,000 before they That's put right. on the show. Even, even six seems a little, a little steep to me. Let's put it that way. The, the, the jar did not seem to me like it was full of $6,000 worth of bills <laughs> unless those were hundreds. In which case, where do they live? <laughs> where do they live? Where do you guys think this is set? 
I believe it's set in Delaware. Wow, the home of Joe Biden. That's fascinating because Delaware is the is the state where every company incorporates to avoid um well to avoid taxes and to get preferential treatment uh, from bankruptcy courts. We and- don't know. We don't know what's going on politically behind the scenes at this time, but I think we can surmise that a music town is benefiting from certain uh, sweetheart deals put in place by a certain Joe Biden. (laughs) So who's the real villain of Empire Records? Yeah, let's go through uh, Joe Biden's campaign uh, donations. They called him the senator from CNBC. What did they call him, Bronco? Uh, From MBNA. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. MBNA, yeah, so from MBNA, but they should have called him, uh, should have said Music Town. He's the mayor of he's in the pocket of big music town. I think uh, that that might be a good <laughs> note to wrap up on unless there's unless there's more by all means. I have well, I have one correction that I have to make that's gnawing at me. Please. At some point I said that there would be stickers on my water bottle when I was 14 and then I remembered that teenagers didn't drink water back then. That's just not. That's that's a new thing. You know, to the extent that teenagers are drinking water out of water bottles that has happened in the last 5 years. I regret my error. I'm sorry for spreading disinformation. Shameful. Um I may or may not be a Russian <laughs> bot. Well, Megan, thanks for bringing this movie to the podcast. Thanks for exposing the rest of us to it for in some cases the first time. I think maybe next time maybe I'll bring whatever my comfort movie is, you know, something that I loved as a child that's just held up and has nothing wrong with it anymore. Something like Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. I don't know. Uh, uh, but but un- until then, uh, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, deep, deeply reactionary movie. We'll have to discuss <laughs> You! Take the lead. What? Go on, Yeah.